Let's just beat let's just beat the leftist elites. It's more fun too. Like the battles, the conflict in and of itself, like the intellectual conflict with a a genuinely smart um leftist intellectual. You know, like do you want to take candy from a baby or do you want to actually win a fight that's meaningful? You know, like I want to be Rocky going into the fucking ring with Drago and winning. That's sexier. I mean, it's more aesthetically appealing. It's more fun. The training, therefore, is more fun. I don't want to smack around, like, stupid people. You know, that's... But you do understand that most people don't care to that extent, right? And if we're talking about policies that actually affect real human beings, like we're talking about, specifically, we're talking about, um, well, I, I was talking about the males in female prisons, and you brought up the mutilation of children. These are real issues that have, you know, like irreversible effects so if we want to actually tackle these issues does it really matter if you feel you know very high and mighty and important tackling these leftist yes because i'm an egoist because yes, i do it for myself i'm not doing it for mm-hmm. other people okay wait wait, wait. i this is this is where i, I disagree with i disagree with jack here Welcome to the SFL Banter Podcast. This is our second episode after our first episode on um, getting people to come to your SFL meetings and events. That was our first episode. You can find that on Spotify. Um, This episode will be on a different topic. It's going to be on, um, let's call it college students' attitudes. What what do we think college students think about various topics? How do we reach them? How do we uh, meet them where they're at? And how do we and just maybe just general rants, topics, stories, advice about all our experiences going through college, being college students ourselves, and what we've observed and had to deal with uh, in our time being a, I guess you could say a libertarian, perhaps classical liberal on a college campus. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Today, I have three exciting guests with me. I'm going to let them introduce themselves um, really shortly, but my name is Ethan Yang. I've joined SFL in 2018. And I graduated from Trinity College in Connecticut, and I'm currently in law school at the moment. Um, I'll let everyone else uh, introduce themselves right now. Hey, uh, I'm Sid Gundapanini. I joined SFL actually nearly exactly a year ago in late March uh, 2021, recruited by Jack, who will introduce himself in a minute. I'm a sophomore at Binghamton University studying math and economics, and... Uh, I like econ a lot. I want to get a PhD in that eventually and join the mob. The what? Uh, join the mob? Did you say join the mob? Yeah, I, I was thinking of a, a better word for lizard people instead of saying lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia, how about you go? <clears throat> how am I going? Okay. I'm Sophia. I joined SFL a bit less than a year ago. I believe I joined in late April. I go to the University of South Florida, and I'm currently majoring in political science, although I'm actually switching my major to public policy next semester, so kind of transitional phase. I'm eventually most likely going to law school. I'm still kind of figuring it out because I've also been interested in more like local policy stuff lately. So that's what I'm about. Mm. I'm definitely the least like economically minded here. Um, I got into libertarianism more from a general philosophical perspective than an economic perspective. The best advice I have for law school is don't go to law school. But everyone um, says that. Every single person in law school says that. But I don't believe you because you're in law school. So that's how I know you're well, you're, you're trying to clear the market out. Oh, actually, that is true. There's too many lawyers in the market. So 
Um, You're already thinking also, like an economist, Sophia. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, the reason why people say that too is because some people, I think the people who stay in law school really do like the law, but there's a lot of people who look at law school and they see like what you can do with the law degree and they look at lawyers and they look up to them and think that looks super cool, but they don't realize how just how like mind numbingly like just awful sometimes it could be like just reading like endless statutes and like having to stress out over like is your period like bolded or is it not bolded like you know so there's a lot of like really bs things that can drive some normal people insane so i feel like that's a so i feel like yeah everyone needs to be told don't go to law school but if for some reason you're crazy and that excites you then by all means go to law school right well, law I'm school like the opposite like i don't know i don't even particularly want to be an attorney I just want to go to law school to learn. So I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the correct or incorrect mentality. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's different for a lot of people. Like, I, I'm aware it's not all like glitz and glam. I'm going to make money. Like, no, that's not the best way to make money, obviously. Mm -hmm. sorry, yeah, you, that's... Like, Sid, have you introduced yourself yet? Like, uh, no, yeah, sorry. Or, but we can, we can continue the, uh, the law school discussion, yes. I guess, after I introduce myself. Um, so I've been in SFL for two years. Ethan recruited me. Um, March of 2021. After in this exact my, office. Yeah, after my internship, uh, during which I did a lot of work with Ethan at the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, then the, the year following, Sid reached out to me on LinkedIn and we co-authored a paper um, endorsing a pathway to citizenship for, or what did we title it? Like the case for amnesty for illegal immigrants in the U.S right now uh, that we published with Fee. That was awesome. And now Sid and I are uh, not just um, co-authors, but real life friends. Shout out to SFL for enabling a uh, joint MIT Bing Dartmouth um, trip to Albany around this time or a little bit later last year. A little year. bit later, but yeah. A little Pretty bit close. later in the spring. Um, and I'm a junior at Dartmouth College. Uh, majoring in economics with a concentration in industrial organization and minoring in philosophy. So I'm also philosophically minded like Sophia, and that's how I got to libertarianism and the econ and um, kind of the consequentialist arguments for liberty, many of which are rooted in economics, just like further bolstered the philosophical case or like the, uh, the deontological case. Very based. And I remember, Jack, during your internship, you... Um, I don't know what the uh -oh. right word is, but you were very uh, adamant about your <laughs> libertarian positions. At a, and mind you, this is a libertarian think tank, and Jack was a little bit too libertarian for some people. So that's, uh, I mean, actually, no, libertarian is the wrong word. Objectivist is probably yeah, what yeah. was I, pissing I, everybody off. I've, I've tempered my views since, but we can talk about how prioritarianism and egalitarianism are incompatible with um, an actual commitment to liberty. So, and how objectivism doesn't fall into those traps. But that, that's, let's probably not talk about that. That'll just be me talking. So let's no, go back no, like, to the that's, law that's, school conversation. Dude, I go to sleep just thinking about that stuff. Doesn't everyone else think about that stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, no. that <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's just, it I can't go to sleep unless I think about it. Which leads us to our first topic, actually. So I guess we'll start off with a general, what's your general take on how college students from your perspective and experience go about thinking about politics do you think that you know i guess you know especially starting from freshman year and ending and graduating like what have you observed 
from your fellow classmates and their attitudes towards politics. Clearly, Jack is probably on one side of the spectrum where every single little thing is probably thought out. And perhaps some people, you know, probably never thought about it at all. And other people, it's sort of just fall in between. So just general stories, takes, opinions. Um, well, I, I actually think uh, con maybe it's just my university, but I feel like most people I've met are actually quite apolitical. I don't go to a very activist -y school. And while people might post on their Instagram and stuff a lot about various things, I think the vast majority of college students don't care about politics. Uh, you see it in their revealed preferences by not voting. Um, they're not affected by most issues, especially in my school. There's a good amount of people coming from well-off backgrounds. Um, makes it even easier to not care when you're not uh, necessarily being uh, disaffected or hurt in the current system. Uh, and one thing I, I really also think about is I, I think there's a lot more people that are culturally conservative than we realize. And I'm especially thinking about a conversation I had with a coworker a few weeks ago uh, who was, we, we were just talking. She had no clue what a libertarian was. That's how the conversation started. Uh, so I explained to her what the hell a libertarian is. Um, and we went on, just started talking about a few things, whatnot. Uh, and I was hearing a lot of conservative views and I was like, Huh, it, the, the, I hear a lot more of that than you would think on a college campus. And her mm -hmm. view is like, you know, I, I can't really say these things to my friends, though. And I think everyone has this idea that uh, they're kind of the imposter uh, among everyone mm -hmm. else. Uh, when in reality, there's a lot more uh, like-minded, contrarian views than I think uh, one would uh, think right off the bat on a college campus. Conservative, because I feel like that word's lost all meaning. Do you mean socially conservative, economically conservative? Socially conservative, more like uh, in particular, I, I think a lot of people uh, are, at least in my opinion, I, I think are, are at least questioning and saying, hold up, let's wait a minute. Things are going really fast. Things are progressing really fast. Not necessarily saying, no, this is bad. This is wrong. These people should be punished uh, for whatever it may be, uh, but rather just maybe we should just wait, slow down, and think about things. And I mm -hmm. think that applies to a, a broad amount of social issues. Right. I feel like that's just called being normal. Like, I hate the fact that I have to call myself socially conservative now when I'm just a normal person. Based. <laughs> Dude, that's like You're the meme nowadays. The centrist, all right? Mm. Yeah. Dude, Stalin was center-right, let's be real. I think I, I saw that something. There was a tweet that said that. Like, um, Stalin was actually center-right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and the, yeah, the memes, like, the average um, right-wing extremist, like, goes to church, has a family, eats red meat. <laughs> Left-wing extremists, we're not even... Yeah, I'm sure we know where, where I'm going with that, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> well, I want to hear about um, Sophia's campus. It, uh... Do you have a similarly apolitical college experience or uh, or not? Mm, definitely not to the same extent. My campus is pretty politically active. It's definitely more left-wing, though. Um, we have a very active SDS, YDSA. We have a new Students for Socialism Club. Um, then we have like the typical college Democrats and that kind of thing. And they're all very politically active. Although, mm, I don't know, are they really politically active? Though I feel like, like Sid said, a lot of it is very performative. So if you consider that politically active, yes, if not, not really. Like, do they actually tell people to go vote? No. Do they care about any real issues? No. But they stand there and do quote-unquote activism. I think my college is probably somewhere in between these two. Um, I think there are a lot of 
political and like political philosophical oriented clubs like the Alexander Hamilton Society or the Dartmouth Political Union, the Dartmouth Libertarians, Republicans, Conservatives, Democrats. And then we do have um, different publications on various sides of the not the aisle because they're not partisan exactly, but kind of ideological. So the Dartmouth Review is more libertarians and conservatives, but they're also leftists there. In fact, some of some of the best writers there are these two um, anarcho-communists. Obviously, that's ridiculous and doesn't mean anything, but they're good people and they're they're not right wingers by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then there are other publications like Spare Rib and the Dartmouth Radical that are varying degrees of leftist, and then. Uh, the Dartmouth Radical is, as the name might suggest, like kind of militant leftist. I, but I even know somebody, I mean, it, a lot of it is LARPing though, because even the people in the Dartmouth Radical, I know one of the guys, he's like a big kind of menacing dude, but he's friends with me and my other libertarian friend and he shows up to our fraternity parties and he's a really good guy. And he's always, he behaves liberally and tolerantly and nice to everybody. So he might be like putting... Um, these kind of aggressive stickers around campus, but even the radicals on, on all sides are pretty, um, you know, the, the worst thing I've ever suffered was like a little bit of a, somebody trying to out me on Twitter because I was making the, uh, like, who wrote this? Like the markets without limits case um, for, I don't want to call them sweatshops, but that is what they're colloquially called, but for sweatshops because it satisfies the non-worsening condition. Like the alternative isn't you're, you're not coercing kids from like a great public or private education and schooling and putting them in a sweatshop. It's between that and subsistence farming um, and, you know, like succumbing to heat stroke or malaria, right? So anyway, I'm sure all of us here are probably familiar with like the case for, for sweatshops, even on like a prioritarian or like, like progressive basis. So anyway, I was like in, in very good faith explaining that position after this objectivist speaker came my freshman year to this guy on Instagram, like, hey, look at me, I'm presuming good faith. I don't know you, but I'm going to really explain myself. And he like screenshotted that and uploaded it to Twitter. I don't know. Some some people were yelling at me for a couple of days. It, so anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is my campus is full of like politically minded people, but everybody engages rather liberally. We have a really... Um, like cohesive social fabric at my school, unlike the United States more broadly. So, so Jack, what I'm interested in though, is like my, my school also has like a lot of, we have a, a small minority of very passionate people. Like uh, YDSA tries to derail every single right-wing event. Uh, big one was two years ago, Art Laffer came to speak at Binghamton and tables were flipped, property was destroyed. There's an ongoing lawsuit by the National College Republicans against Binghamton University in the state of New York, uh, which actually kind of looks pretty good for them. Uh, but uh, that's that's to say that, there, that we do have a passion. We have these passionate groups. College Democrats are always tabling, putting up events and stuff, holding events. Uh, but I, I don't think most of the campus gives a shit. <laughs> like... You know, I, and the first time I realized that was uh, during the student association elections my freshman year. Um, I was seeing like college Democrats and YDSA make like endorsements of candidates. And those candidates like perform poorly. And of course, yes, there's tons of variables that go into why someone wins an election, any given election. But like no one really cared that the left wing groups were making uh, an endorsement of candidate. No one like particularly goes out of their way to go to these events. It's really just 
the people that want to go into politics show up to college Democrats with a few other environmental majors and whatnot. But like we, we do have political people, of course, just not the vast majority. And that's why I'm wondering, like you, you have all these groups, right? All the, these uh, Dartmouth radicals, all the papers. We also have a liberal and conservative paper that have strong views that argue within themselves. But how much does the, the general populace really care? I, I, I'm going to be honest. The joke that I make, um, sometimes I, I cover events for the review and people ask me like, oh, what are you covering this for? And I'm like, the review. And they're like kind of trepidation. They're like, oh, like, are you going to say anything bad? I'm like, no. And even if I did, let's be honest, like kind of beating them to the punch, who's going to read it? I mean, we distribute physical versions to like every dorm on campus. And, you know, our readership yeah. is mostly online and, you know, from like people's parents that we send the paper to. Probably. I'm not on business side. If any reviewers are listening to this, you know, I'm a senior correspondent. I have nothing but love and affection for the review. Every writer there is amazing, incredible, yada, yada. Um, but this is just to respond to your point. Yeah, there are a lot of, um, but still a minority of, of, campus are politically engaged in these clubs extracurricularly in their academic course of study um but the number of other students that actually like care is very small and, and casual like there were i show up to dartmouth conservatives meetings to like extol the libertarian viewpoint on whatever the conversation topic is um you know and there are maybe 12 16 consistent members and occasionally there'll be a couple of people who just like think that something crazy is going on so they'll show up and like listen they'll be like oh this is actually a really interesting conversation i still don't really give a shit uh sorry can we swear i still don't really give a shit but um but like you guys aren't crazy see ya so so yeah i, I guess campus is largely um apathetic uh i guess everybody's pretty passionate about voting the dartmouth democrats do a good job um i guess if you care about voting I don't really, but if you care about voting, they do a good job turning people out to like local and state and you know, whatever, uh, federal elections, uh, making sure people are registered. And occasionally the Dartmouth Political Union will have um, invite a major speaker and that'll get maybe, I mean, I haven't been to any, even I haven't been to their events, but, but no, they get quite a sizable turnout, maybe like over a hundred sometimes. Like they had Bobby Seal of the Black Panthers come sometime last year and people will show up to like the big um, events like that. But, but yeah, largely people are politically rather apathetic even during voting years. And I think that's probably a good sign because it shows that people are focusing on things really within their locus of control, which isn't political. It's like personal, academic, professional, um, and they feel like they can uh, pursue those things meaningfully enough um, because there aren't significant political barriers preventing them from doing so. So I think I think the more politically apathetic people are, probably the um, the better your society, whether it's a college campus or a country, is doing. You know, um, I don't think people were super. I mean, of course, there are always like wonks that are interested in, in policy and politics. But I feel like, you know, the entire country became more political end of the Obama years, you know, early Trump years and now Biden, you know, everybody has an opinion on everything and rather, you know, polarizing opinions on, on a whole host of issues instead of like, I don't know, being concerned about, hey, what am I going to do for like my girlfriend or wife today? Like, what am I going to do for my child or how am I going to pursue this like work or, or craft or hobby more, more meaningfully or, or happily? Um, but, you know, on the flip side, maybe people are, are not doing those things because of economic and political conditions. They find it so much harder to do those things. So they, 
they're pushed to care about politics. I don't know. I was just pontificating for a bit. Uh, <laughs> Sophia or Ethan, how about you jump in there? Yeah, my college, there's an echo going on. Um, in my college, there is definitely more apolitical in the sense that in my college, it was a um, prop, it was like a lot of people who cared about public policy. Obviously, Trinity College did turn out a lot of people who uh, majored in political science. Um, we have a great internship program to uh, work in the Connecticut State Senate while you're at school. I did that. So there's plenty of people who cared, but I think the vast majority of people just sort of um, want to keep it to themselves, either because they're afraid or they don't care because, you know, they just want to enjoy college. Um, a lot of people want to go into Wall Street and law. So it's a very, very much more like the kind of preppy private school vibe, um, which I thought was cool. But I think this kind of goes to what everyone else was talking about. There's always like these really angry people who like to start stuff. And that's what really makes Trinity College like your typical like Northeast private school, as in like every so often something crazy happens. Like, and it's usually always like, like the radical um, progressive, like racial equity people to like try to start, like try to call something racist. And then that goes, and then everyone's kind of afraid to say no. So then there's like this whole movement to like, cancel this, cancel that. And then sometimes you'll get like, admittedly, these were my friends, you'll get like some pretty ambitious right wing people who like, want to pick a fight. So then they'll do something to, to start something even more. And you just kind of got this back and forth between a really radical, super left wing people um, going after the more Trumpian style people. And they just kind of, and they, I think they kind of feed off each other and just kind of dominates the whole campus sometimes. And then, and then everyone in the middle is usually, usually just kind of agrees with the left wing people just so he's like, oh, please don't hurt me. Like, of course, I'm not racist. And um, and yeah, and there's like always like a few like people on the right who like want to hang a MAGA flag outside their dorm room just to piss people off. And so, yeah, and uh, yeah, Trinity College has been on like I forgot like all the various like right wing media groups like uh, I don't, what, what was it? Campus reform. Yeah, like campus reform and uh like Fox News, Tucker Carlson, like Tucker Carlson actually went to Trinity College. So that, that might say something about the school, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I feel like Trinity is very emblematic of a Northeast private school, not as political as say uh, Wesleyan. Wesleyan probably, Wesleyan definitely takes it to a new level, but Trinity College definitely still has like a lot of people in the center slash center left who really don't care, want to go into finance, want to live a good life. And a lot of very angry people at the margins who really dominate the conversation. That actually uh, kind of makes me think about how Binghamton was like a year or two ago. Uh, the college Republicans uh, on our campus has drastically changed over the last two years. Uh, it used to be led by a guy who was a hardcore MAGA Republican, very, very conservative, uh, both culturally and was outspoken about his views. Uh, earlier in uh, late 2022, rather, he was uh, arrested for being at the Jan 6 protests along with two others, uh, was inside the office. There was an FD, FBI investigation published uh, that was 250 pages long, filled with his every move, uh, pictures of him on campus, just at dining halls like they were. They had everything on this. It was insane. Um, and also before this happened, uh, he was impeached from college Republicans for, just wait, election fraud. Uh, because the college Republicans chapter on our campus, um, they held a closed ballot election without the general body of the club, and only the board members voted, and they voted for themselves. Uh, so the college Republicans chapter was basically overthrown, and now it is filled with 
uh, anti-Trump Republicans. The president's a hardcore Austrian. Um, the one one of the other guys loves Milton Friedman. Like it's a, it's a very not Trumpy uh, cloud Republicans, much less contrarian. And this last year, um, college Dems, Republicans, and Libertarians have held a few events together. Uh, kind of just not. Uh, I, I I try to keep them away from voter turnout related things, um, but I try to keep it. I, I like to encourage open discussion of things, and I've been trying to hold more uh, forum uh, debates, discussions on various topics. Something very so, similar. Uh, happened. The, the environment has changed a lot. Something very similar happened this past year, like year and a half, at at my school, Sid. Um, except it didn't happen. The reform didn't happen within the college Republicans. Um, but there, were, there was some tumult, and I don't want to mischaracterize stuff that I'm not super familiar with, but at a very high level, um, there were similar election shenanigans within the college Republicans that alienated their general body. Now I'm not sure if they have more than like five members, which to be fair, the Dartmouth Libertarians don't have more than like 12 regular members. So I'm not, I, you know, to put it, setting that aside though, they were like very MAGA, still are the, the remaining college Republicans, um, rather populist, I think I'd say, kind of extreme. And then instead of them having um, kind of like a hostile takeover to bring them back around to like, I don't know, Chicago school, George, like Washington consensus era um, Republicans, like Mitt Romney style Republicans, whatever you want to call them, a new club formed called the Dartmouth Conservatives. Um, and they're nonpartisan, but they facilitate, you know, these conversations. I mean, they, they have an ideology, which is um, largely like, I'd say they're largely fusionist. Um, so I get along with them on a bunch of things. I don't get along with them on several things. Um, but yeah, yeah, there was a, now there's, there's definitely a robust representation of, I guess, the kind of Republicans that I think probably all of us have more overlap with than the populist MAGA um, people. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I have really very little in common with, with those kinds of Republicans and quite a lot in common with, with fusionists. So I'm really glad that to hear that about your campus and, and my campus is the same way, funnily enough. I think no, it's like... interesting that you consider MAGA people to be very conservative or, yeah, like, I guess like the most conservative, because in my head, that's not really where they're at. And I think it's odd that now they're characterized as being very conservative because they're not, I mean, they're, they're not economically conservative at all. They're fake social conservatives, usually in my experience. Like, they're like, oh, we're so socially conservative. Then you talk to them and they love, like, Andrew Tate and, you know, cheating on their girlfriends and drugs and just being horrible people overall. Um, I mean, not all of them, not all populists, uh, to be fair, but a significant portion of them. So I do think it's odd that you call them, like, the most conservative. I don't know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, experienced that as well. Well, I just like to respond. I mean, like precision of language is important. So I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I don't mean conservative in the uh, philosophical sense. Like, oh, these are the most Burkean people. No, obviously not. Um, but I guess I, when I said conservative there, I mean it in the colloquial kind of culture warrior <laughs> sense. And even there, they the word conservative, I agree, doesn't apply because of all this Andrew Tate uh, kind of stuff. But uh, I guess a better word for them, and what I really don't get along with, uh, is their economic populism, the protectionism, the uh, attitude, the not xenophobia. Um, I'm not going to go that far. I don't think it's a personal thing like that, but kind of the economic aversion to immigrants, which I think is ill-founded, just purely like like quantitatively. I don't, I don't think they can back that claim up, um, at least medium and long term. But uh, 
But yeah, so I'll revise my earlier statement. The MAGA Republicans are economic populists instead of Washington consensus, like kind of neo-libs or, or classical libs um, like us. Yeah, classical libs, not, not neo-libs. I wouldn't describe myself uh, as a neo-lib, but yeah. Based. Well, Sophia, you did mention, I guess to move on, you did mention the cultural conservative point, which conveniently brings us to the next topic, which is what do we think college students, how college students actually view cultural norms? And so to tee up the question, a lot of people like to criticize colleges as the, you know, like a cesspool of just degeneracy and people, you know, go to college, they take all the drugs, they have like sex every day, right? Um, but how do we actually think it is? How, how, what have you guys observed? In my experience, I think that's pretty accurate. Like I said, like I definitely did not consider myself socially conservative until, yeah, about two years ago when I started college and now compared to the other people I meet, I am. Um, so to me, like I'm just a normal person, but being in these environments where, yeah, I mean, hookup culture is rampant. Like people sleep with a new person every week. They drink four times a week and they think all this is very normal. I, I honestly think it's accurate. I do think that stereotype is accurate. Based. Which, which Sid, part, what do you which part of oh. that is based, Ethan? <laughs> oh, no. I, yeah, I say based a lot. It's a libertarian podcast based, based, based. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to. I was just saying based to say based. But yeah, Jack, do you have an opinion? I know you have an opinion, Jack. Never mind. So what's your opinion on it? I, I want to hear your experience from Trinity and SIDS at Bing before I launch into my tirade, which is, is similar to Sophia's. Yeah, Trinity, uh, hookup culture, definitely strong. I, I remember my professor actually pointed this out. My professor is like at, at law school. She's like very Catholic and is very trying to like kind of prove that America isn't like or trying to denormalize, you know, a lot of the more excessive um like more like contemporary behaviors and trying to point out like most Americans are actually a little bit more conservative socially than most people point out to be. And I kind of say the same thing for Trinity as in, I think a large proportion of students actually do engage in hookup culture and doing a lot of drugs and doing and drinking a lot. And that's certainly, you know, that's definitely a facet of the college experience. But I feel like the people I surround myself with and people, a lot of people just kind of ran into is like, you know, like, obviously, we went out to drink, obviously, and, you know, we would find someone every so often, but it wasn't like, you know, like some people, I do know some people who like, you know, slept with every other person on campus, but I do, I do also know a lot of people who are just, you know, go to college, they indulge a little bit, you know, moderation, especially in, in my opinion, moderation's a great thing, you know, go out and have a drink, uh, go out and party sometimes. But I think a lot of people that I know were a bit more of the, I guess we can call it normal, just like, obviously indulging get living up living it up but not like to the extent where it's just like excessive and all the time um so my school is known as a party school i go to a public school in new york uh it's a pretty big uh spot for parties like every uh december we have santa con one of the biggest uh uh like weekends of the year where people are coming up from all over the state to binghamton uh, but I, I have to say, I don't think the stereotype is as prevalent as one would think. Um, and I, I kind of look at myself, look to myself in that regard. Uh, so in, in New York, uh, since it's public school, most people are in state. Um, a lot of people party a lot in high school, myself included. Um, 
I, I, really, I, I drank for the first time when I was 13 uh, and was going out to parties nearly every weekend starting freshman year of high school. And so were most of my friends. And I, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people have phases where they're in part of this hookup culture where they're hooking up with people, uh, three people, five people, ten people in a week even, you know. Um, yeah, uh, I, people, people, I've, I've seen it, uh, people, I've seen people do all types of drugs. I've probably, I, I've definitely seen a lot of drugs in front of my face more than I can count. Um, but that being said, I, I think we have to look at the four year, uh, the, the fact that college is four years. And I, I think that like, I, I would say as far as 95% of people do not maintain these habits for four years. Uh, I think college is a place where you try out new things, you learn, you better yourself, you find out what you like doing. And the vast majority of people, guys and girls that are hooking up with people are not doing that for all of college. There is a population, of course, that, yeah, they're going to be going to frat parties every weekend um, and trying to get with someone every weekend. Uh, but the most people on campus are not doing that for four years of college. Uh, it's usually one or two years, and then they find other stuff. So I guess I'm going to toss a little bomb out there for the conversation. Um, we were talking about hookup culture, drinking a lot, doing drugs, essentially like virtue versus lack of virtue, that kind of stuff. In your opinion, is it, you know, we're talking about, obviously we're talking about as a bad thing. So do you do you think it's a bad thing that this is happening on college campuses, or do you think it's more of a, just a normal part of life, you know, that we have to normalize as part of is living in the Western liberal civilization, right? So that's my little bomb. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Something can be both normal and not positive. Like it doesn't have to be necessarily negative, but we don't have to pretend that every single thing, you know, we've ever done is super moral and virtuous and perfect. And everyone should aspire to live that way because that's not realistic. And like, yes, it's part of life and it's part of your personal development. But also, like Sid said, you have to grow up eventually. And part of that growing up is acknowledging that not everything you've ever done or your friends have ever done is, yeah, like some aspirational thing. It just kind of is. I totally agree with Sid and Sophia here, and there's something that Adam Smith says in uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which I really like to bring up as often as I can, which is oftentimes the remote effect of vice is virtue. And if the vice isn't straight up morally impermissible, like thievery, physical violence, coercion, sexual or otherwise, which none of this stuff is... Um, Although, depending on what kind of drugs you're using and the circumstance, unfortunately, that can precipitate some worse things. But these things taken in and of themselves, um, they're not immoral like that, right? They're permissible. Um, are they, I like, what, I like how Sophia put it, are they aspirational? No, to a certain extent. But like, you know, I, I, I and I, you know, Sid and, and Sophia actually just totally, between the two of them, hit the nail on the head. You know, Sid says, well, I kind of understand this by looking inwards, and I'll do the same. Uh, you know, I had these two huge papers due last night. They were both due at 12. I, like, started working very early in the morning and worked until 8.30 p.m., submitted them, and then went to a rock concert in town with my friend for a couple hours. I will just leave it at... Neither of us were sober. Both of us are 21 plus, so nothing illegal happened. Certainly nothing immoral happened. And we had a good time unwinding from, uh, you know, our productivity with a little bit of dissipation. And there's another great uh, quote from Adam, from Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments on how, like, 
the human body and like mind requires dissipation kind of in and of itself and also to be able to continue being productive and and virtuous and um and generative so not that not to rely on the ethos of adam smith too much but i think he's right about both of those things so i think these things taken in moderation are actually not vices i think they're virtues and even when taken to a ridiculous degree let's say freshman year or sophomore year or, or even all four years of college, depending on who you are. Um, I agree with Sid. Eventually, people grow out of it and they learn. Hey, they know scientifically. They don't. They don't know deductively. Um, you know, clearly they weren't convinced deductively or a priori that hey, these things are wrong because they're wrong. No, they tested. Just like you know, they they tried to uh, you know uh, falsify the null, and they did. They're like, hey, I kept doing this, and I kept like being miserable and alienated and sad if I did it to a certain extent, or if I was like sleeping with a new person every night or doing like this amount of drugs or this kind of drug in this kind of scenario. And so I actually think it, again, just to totally reinforce what Sid said, it's a really, college is a great and a rather controlled and safe space, not in the way that progressives mean that, although kind of in the way that progressives mean that, to um, test these things for yourself and, and learn virtue by practicing a little bit of vice actually. Um, and, and moreover, the claim that, that other generations or even people in our generation make um, that, you know, we're a lot more promiscuous or libertine or we abuse drugs more heavily than previous generations, that's absolutely um, specious. It's not true. Like, it's empirically measurably not true, um, especially regarding sex. Like, I've seen uh, statistics thrown all over the place about how lonely this generation of young people is, particularly men, how few sexual partners people have, how little sex people are having nowadays in our generation. Um, Discord is to blame. So, well, so so maybe maybe there's something of like, there's a Gini coefficient there and some people are having like all the sex and most people are having no sex. I, I don't know. That's beyond my, my econometric uh, toolkit. Um, but yeah, I think generally the claims that we are like so libertine compared to other generations are are straight up wrong. Mm-hmm. I've seen the opposite claims, like you said, that we're actually not libertine as a generation, and we're like getting our licenses later, um, getting into relationships later, like not drinking or using drugs as much. So I've definitely seen both. And not to like turn this into an alpha male podcast, because I kind of sense it's going in that direction. But um, I do think it's like what Jack was saying that it really is like a select group of people who are engaging in those behaviors, and then everyone else isn't. And that is indicative of, yeah, honestly, like the degenerate culture on college campuses. Um, I really do think it's like, it's a certain group of men. um, And then, you know, I don't know, maybe like half the women. It's definitely not most people. But I do think that it's less men than women, just because of like the nature of biology. I want to make sure that we keep the conversation on track and not this devolve into a podcasts about SFL sex life. Um, but I mean, this was certainly important to our conversation, but I want to really go into the final point, which I think is probably the juiciest point, which is sort of attitudes about uh, specific political topics, such as things SFL cares about, capitalism, political institutions, you know, our civilizational values um, as they pertain to political va- political culture. And so Jack, I think uh, to pivot off kind of like your religious meta-ethical um, statement, um, Set up the question, you know, Will Will F. Buckley, you know, founder of the National Review, pens a famous book, God and Man, God and Man at Yale, which he's basically saying that Yale, you know, Yale University, they're teaching all these terrible things, they're corrupting the youth, they are 
essentially God is dead at Yale. And they're teaching these students, they're preparing these students to really essentially undermine our civilization. So sort of as that teeing that up, do you think your respective campuses and your fellow classmates, what do you think their opinions are on sort of like the most foundational things to our society, like markets, political institutions, the rule of law? I think when you explain markets without saying markets free mar- or free market capitalism, it, there, there's a lot of support uh, for the ideas that come along with it. Uh, it's it's when you use the the buzzwords that people start to lose interest, in my opinion. And yes, there, there's there's I think there's many parts of free markets people don't like. Like if you say, uh, do, why do you support sweatshops? The vast majority of college students will say no, obviously. But uh, uh, just on a lot of core principles of markets, being able to uh, trade with each other, and you know, just the the liberal society that comes about from markets, I, I think most people agree with. I completely agree. I think if you say things like voluntary solutions, they're a lot more likely to support it versus capitalism. That word specifically has a really negative connotation for some reason. So I think that that's definitely a factor. Um, Overall, though, I do think people really enjoy the status quo. And in that way, they like capitalism, even if they don't actively support it. Uh, Quite frankly, they're just not well educated enough to even come up with any alternatives. So they kind of subconsciously enjoy capitalism. I'm going to actually have to disagree with both Sid and Sophia here. I, I, I agree with the status quo point, and I agree that people are a lot less hostile to um, private property and voluntary exchanges thereof, right? This is just a way of describing capitalism without using that word. Um, to a point, but I think if they're, and I don't, I don't mean this in a mean way, but I think that if you're engaging with an intellectual and you use all of those those words that aren't like trigger words for communists or marxists or whatever prioritarians these these intellectuals will pick up that what you care about is negative rights is respecting people's autonomy when the intellectuals on the opposite well i'm not sure if i should say opposite side but the prioritarian intellectuals find uh the respect for autonomy to be on par or secondary, a secondary consideration to people's like material circumstances. So no, Sid, your private property and your consent and autonomy doesn't frankly matter, again, to these intellectuals, if somebody else is in need of your property, or since you're an economist, we'll say if somebody can derive more marginal utility from your property than you're deriving. Um, Let me just quickly add, uh, I I, I, I fully agree. Uh, I I was more referring to just the, the average person on your college campus as opposed to the politically well the the people that the people i now i have a biased sample but the people with whom i engage on my campus even when i use terms like that they know where i'm going and they catch me by saying something like this so um perhaps i'm just like super discriminating with who i speak to on on my campus and I, i speak to a bunch of pedantic um people like myself so but yeah yeah touche um but no, I think even I think even still, like the average leftist uh, person on the college campus, even though they might not use fancy terms like I just did, that that doesn't matter. That's immaterial. I think that there is a, a large contingent of people that um, to harken back to what Ethan said about you know Buckley's book, uh, what is it, God and Man at Yale, and how. I haven't read it, but I assume it's something like God's dead at Yale and like the leftists have killed him. No, I think I think that there is a, a real God for the atheistic leftists and it's the God of, of equity and prioritarianism. It is the um, positioning of the worst off and their needs and wants above the negative rights 
of individuals. And this is what delineates liberals from leftists. And frankly, if conservatives are being honest, I mean, most of them are communitarians, and they also put the need of like the nation or the family or the religious sect above the negative rights of individuals. So I think that this is the thing that really separates uh, the wheat from the chaff or the, uh, the libertarians, the liberals, liberals, really, this is philosophically what we are, the liberals from the people who who regard individual rights and liberty as secondary to other considerations. And uh, I don't like those people. Uh, well, I like those people. I like a lot of those people. I like a lot of those people. I take that back. I just don't share those, those conclusions. It's okay to be honest. <laughs> yeah, Jack, tell us how you really feel. Um, yeah, on that point, I think Jack really talked about it where the, act, the, the professors themselves very much have a very strong, deep-seated intellectual disdain for... Uh, the ideas of classical liberalism, free markets, rule of law, that kind of stuff. And I think this, but I think the student body itself is quite diverse. Even if, like, obviously some schools are overwhelmingly conservative or overwhelmingly progressive. I think most students are sort of somewhere in the middle. They all, they're all taught that these things are good in high school, uh, middle school, that kind of stuff. So I think most people, generally speaking, are sympathetic to what we have right now just because it's the status quo, not because they've read John Locke or something like that. And but I think the, the the dangerous part is that the professors the professorial class and the so the administrative class at the college campuses like the uh, the diversity equity inclusion office and all, you know all the various other attached offices very much shift the conversation to the point where if you're a normal student you know who's like generally favorable towards markets hasn't thought about it enough generally favorable towards you know the the constitution hasn't thought about it enough you're, you're at the very least. There is a pressure to go along with what's being said at the top level. So, for example, at my college, um, there is a group called the Churchill Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. And it's your classic, you know, every private, I think every elite private school has like this, you know, conservative little fellowship program. Like, this is very common. And so we had one at Trinity and all we did, I was in it. So I guess like conflict of interest, maybe, maybe not. It was like we read Tocqueville and we read Machiavelli. All right. We read, you know, some really foundational Western canon text about like good government, essentially. And the faculty and the administrative people just completely demonize this stuff to the point like they're calling us racist or calling, even though like there's probably one of the most diverse groups on campus because it was like, come here if you like to study these ideas, not because you're this or that. And I was also part of the, like, the more, obviously I'm a libertarian, so I was more involved in, like, the libertarian side of campus where the professors that are libertarian. I helped them start, like, a free market fellowship program. Um, and that was less demonized because, well, one, because I was kind of the face of it, so you can't really call a group with the Asian dude in charge, like, racist. But also because, you know, we didn't use words like Western civilization, but they still did not like the whole free markets and individual liberty and the rule of law are like the best things, you know, like that was kind of our message. It was, it was less aggressive than Western civilization, but we were still like called like some sort of weird secret society that's like corrupting the youth and spreading like all these like bad ideas. And yeah, there was just a lot of hostility, um, sort of like at the professional level. And that sort of like, and that sort of like bubbles down to the students who kind of serve as the vanguard for those people and in the general population, we just like, you know, please don't hurt me. Okay, fine. I'll say the, the Churchill Institute is racist. Thank you. Like, please don't hurt me. Like, I want to look like a nice person. And they'll sign the petition and they'll get and they'll get in the line. You know, they'll get into the 200 person um, parade saying like, this is racist, even though they have no clue what we do. 
Um, so yeah, that's this is very silly stuff of you know, I guess like large groups of people not wanting to get hurt and then listening to the very powerful minority that has a very, very strong intellectual philosophical interest in all of this. Yeah, I, I think really everything we've spoke about for the last hour comes down to the idea that the vast majority of the population are followers, and it's usually a vocal minority that dominates any topic. Uh, like people say, there's no such thing as a majority rule democracy. It's there's a strong minority, and the most most people will just go along with it. That being said, though, I think this time period is the time where people are most questioning of larger institutions more than ever. Um, that's also because I think some of the minority voices are louder than ever, uh, and because there, there are, I, I, I would say uh, maybe maybe some will disagree here, but I, I, I think that there are people that the people losing in society right now are losing more than ever, uh, in my opinion. So I think that minority voices, uh, the, the strong minority voices, are becoming more and more vocal, and I think that's bringing on some stronger following of the general populace, but. In general, I, I think most people um, aren't really uh, thinking provocatively about uh, these pressing issues because they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't need to. It's not their comparative advantage. Sid, can you explain um, what you meant in uh, maybe like your penultimate sentence there about how people nowadays are losing out more than ever? The people who are suffering like the distributional... Um, detriments of did you mean like of our economic system of something politically that's going on culturally across, across the board the, yeah across the board and on both sides of the aisle i think because when it, i think it's mainly come about of tar both sides targeting specific groups uh playing the blame game uh and the, the being when one side gets scapegoated it just enrages them more and it kind of uh, i look at politics as like a pendulum where one side gets riled up, pushes the pendulum the other way, starts doing whatever, really goes radical in one direction, then the pendulum swings the other direction, and it goes back and forth, and eventually, I think it's going to topple. All right, I'm somewhere between Sid and, and Sophia, because I think that in pursuing the truth and meaningfully treating serious topics that are going to be controversial, you may piss people off, in which case, tough shit. I'm pursuing the truth. And if you don't like the truth that I genuinely, like clearly and distinctly, though perhaps erroneously, because we're human beings, perceive to be true. And uh, and again, and that angers somebody, true, true and unrelated. Like I'm a truth seeker. So if that pisses you off, you know, that's a you problem. But but I think there's a there's a meaningful difference between inviting somebody for that purpose and then having the knock on effect or like a secondary effect um, unintended being angering other people versus inviting somebody to gin up publicity because they are controversial. I think those are two very different things, right? When I invite Craig Biddle to present a very, I don't know, metaphysically complicated and controversial account of the objectivity of human rights from, a, from an objectivist perspective, that might, well, it doesn't piss anybody off because frankly, it's too intellectual, but, but it might rub some of the philosophy majors the wrong way that think, oh, this is ridiculous. You're like, this event is ridiculous. This is a, isn't a real argument, but you know what? Like, God damn it. I want to hear the argument. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's true. Like, I think it's meaningful. So I'm going to engage with it versus I'm going to bring, um, Matt Walsh to my campus to ask people, um, what do you think a woman is by the way, by the way, the, the metaphysics, if there even are metaphysics of sex, are not 
remotely as simple as conservatives make it out to be. By the way, I mean, I, I don't touch culture war issues, but the actual philosophy of is there a not intellectual enough for me? Pseudo intellectual. I'm I'm way too arrogant to deal with shit like that that I think is beneath me. Boom. Yeah, I think I'll it's just very say easy it. to label things as culture war issues and just not get involved. Because like on the on the gender sex issue, I'll just, I'll just cut it out if you don't like it. But um, I do think that a lot of real issues get written off as, oh, like that's a, you know, it's a culture war issue. So specifically in regards to like what I think we're all talking about, right? Like gender ideology. Um, the real consequences of that are males and female prisons, for example. So now there's, you know, like real tangible harm that can come of that. So it's like if we're talking about that, I think it's OK to piss people off versus Matt Walsh just angering people for no reason. So I do think it's like it's the intent of the argument. I, I totally agree with you, Sophia. And in fact, what I was saying earlier, I think is actually in complete alignment with you. Like, number one, ph philosophically trying to gauge, like, what does it mean to have a masculine or feminine nature or, like, to be a man or a woman? You know, you're, you're a woman, Sophia, I assume you consider yourself a woman. If you were to, uh, like, horribly be, like, suddenly mutated physically or suffer some trauma that removes your, some, like, secondary sexual characteristics, would you be less of a woman? I don't think you'd consider yourself. A so, so anyway, there's like a very meaningful intellectual conversation here about what it means to be essentially a man or a woman. And if there is a third option, right? Because there are people with like Kleinsfelter syndrome. So anyway, it's like biologically, scientifically, philosophically, really a lot more nuanced than both sides want to make it out to be. And I agree with you, Sophia, that the public policy implications are very serious and not and and not of interest only to pseudo intellectual culture warriors. And I don't want to be misconstrued as saying that, right? Because if because of these um, debates, we end up ir irreversibly physically mutilating children. That's something I care about, right? Like like morally, that's that's an issue to me. Um, I j that's why I focused on like the Matt Walsh example specifically, or what's his name, uh, the other Daily Wire guy Knowles, saying you know we have to what did he say exterminate. Not, not exterminate, it was, but it was close to that. Extinguish? Something like that. We have to... Something... Um, transgenderism. Well, first of all, you can't, you can't annihilate an idea. So I don't know what you mean by that. Secondly, we don't want to annihilate ideas. If you really think that your arguments are persuasive and you have the truth and you are right, then why should you want to magically disappear the other argument? Aren't you right? Aren't you so clearly, distinctly, and obviously right that it shouldn't matter that the other side exists? So those people I consider actually to be even worse because Michael Knowles, Walsh, they actually are intellectuals. They're very smart. They're very thoughtful. They could go back and forth with us just like this, but instead they, 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 not always. I actually, I actually like Michael Knowles on other things, frankly. Um, but, but there's sometimes where they, they do the cultural warrior aggressive, mean, pseudo-intellectual thing just to get views or like just to become popular. Um, and that yeah, really pisses me off. So true! So true! It does get traction though. Like, for example, how many people here know who Andrea Dworkin is? Have read any of her work? Nobody. Okay. And you, oh. Have you? Okay. Well, no, because I mean, you're all very intelligent people. You know, you're all big readers. And yet, like, you don't know this, like, basic radical feminist philosopher who's been talking about issues within gender ideology for years. You know, she's right. been writing about this stuff since, like, the 80s. And yet no one cared when people were writing these books. And that didn't get media attention. And no one did talk about the repercussions on, you no. know, female safety and children and whatnot when it was written very professionally and very nicely. 30 years ago, and yet now we have Matt Walsh screaming, and now people are paying attention. Wait, 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 wait. 
kind but of is but working. Not exactly, but it's not that nobody uh, was listening. You're right, the masses, the populace, the general citizenry was not cued into these topics. Instead, Andre Dworkin and all these intellectual, philosophical or economic, whatever, these academic leftists, um, they were extremely persuasive and, and effective in capturing the elite institutions. And now because they did that, not because a bunch of people were convinced by their work, but because the elites were convinced by them, now we have to deal with their bankrupt ideology. And so, if I may, I, so uh, let's, let's beat them on those grounds. Let's beat them in the academic elite grounds. I also think people like Matt Walsh are a product of our times. Um, it's, if, if Matt Walsh exists in the 80s, he would be a nobody. Uh, he gets to talk about these issues with uh, pros because they are relevant today. Uh, whereas some of these things like transgenderism weren't really a hot button issue back in the 80s. Uh, so I, I think uh, we have to take that into consideration as well. Let's just beat let's just beat the leftist elites. It's more fun too. like the battles, the conflict in and of itself, like the intellectual conflict with a, a genuinely smart um, leftist intellectual. You know, like, do you want to take candy from a baby or do you want to actually win a fight that's meaningful? You know, like, I want to be Rocky going into the fucking ring with Drago and winning. That's sexier. I mean, it's more aesthetically appealing. It's more fun. The training, therefore, is more fun. I don't want to smack around, like, stupid people. You know, that's... But you do understand that most people don't care to that extent, right? And if we're talking about policies that actually affect real human beings, like we're talking about specifically, we're talking about um, why well, I was talking about the males in female prisons and you brought up the mutilation of children. These are real issues that have, you know, like irreversible effects. So if we want to actually tackle these issues, does it really matter if you feel, you know, very high and mighty and important tackling these? Leftist yes, because I'm an egoist. Because yes, I do it for myself. Years? I'm not doing it for other mm. people. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I, this, is, this is where I, I disagree with... I disagree with Jack here. Um, I, I think when you... It, yes, oversimplifying ideas means you get to reach larger audiences much quicker. But when they go and talk to someone else about it, it means those ideas get rejected much quicker as well. Uh, it's retention of these ideas is, that we need to care about. Uh, if we are looking at spreading a philosophy. And yeah, it gets people thinking about liberty. It gets people talking about liberty more. But does it get people into liberty more? I'd say it's a net negative for the movement. So I agree with Sid, but I just want it to be perfectly on. I think that Sid's right, consequentially. Like, if we want to win these battles for people that are being really, like, really detrimented by these economic, political, whatever other um, ideologies that we fight against, um, then in the medium and long term, we ha I do think we have to do it the way that Sid and, and I have been describing. But to be even more honest than that, I just really like writing and thinking and like working through these problems. And I'm not doing it for other people, which I know Sophia knows because we've spoken about this at length. So <laughs> I, I still believe that uh, I'm still not an altruist. But even if you have even if you are an altruist or doing this specifically to help other people, then I still then I think you probably have to do both. To some extent, I and I, I lean towards the winning the um, the institutions and like the elite conflicts. But obviously, you can you can impact lives for the best or, or for the better at least, and perhaps for the best by engaging in a more like like popular on the ground in media in these culture war debates or whatnot. 
I mean, if, if the leftists are going to be in there and the rightists are going to be in there, um, then we should also probably be in there to some extent, right? So I'll, I'll temper, I'll temper my, my extreme position a little bit, but not that much, but a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, to your point, like, I, I also do things for myself. Uh, the reason why I am, I don't know, you guys don't know me though, well, I guess Jack does to an extent. But anyone who knows me knows that I'm really into, like, radical feminist theory. Um, that's something that I extensively enjoy. I probably know, like, the most about that out of anything. Um, and that's because I'm a woman. So those are issues that affect me. Uh, I do think that you're more likely to care about issues that affect you, and that's fine. So when I think of it, it's not from some, like, altruistic, I need to save the world, you know, like, everyone is degenerate and blah, 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 perspective. It's these issues genuinely affect me. Like, if I was, you know, if I was the same way I was when I was eight years old, and I have some, like, you know, masculine personality traits, right? I I still do, but I had those back then, too. Uh, Would I want to be told, like, oh, no, like, you're not really a woman? No. I mean, I think it's terrifying that eight-year-olds are being fed these lies that if you're not, you know, hyper-feminine and soft and whatnot, then you're not a woman. Like, I think that is really scary. And the fact that now they're being physically mutilated is horrifying and it needs to be stopped. And I care about that because I care about myself, I care about my family, I care about my friends and, you know, like, little girls I see around me who are, you know, the daughters of people I care about. It's not some random thing. And I think if you think about it as like this random untouchable thing, then it's like, oh no, we can't talk about that. Like, you know, that's that's altruism. That doesn't matter. Like focus on yourself. Like no culture wars. When you realize that everything affects something you care about, then you can't really ignore it as easily. My uh my worldview changes, I guess, because just becoming more anti um elite, even though I, I have spoken very elitist, I feel like the last hour. Um, I, I started reading a book called Markets Not Capitalism, and it really goes in depth uh, about crony capitalism and really how much uh, the, the elite of our society really control and how artificial it is. Like, you know, if, if it was natural, then I, I would I, I really wouldn't have much to say about it. But when, when it's come about through political power and government, uh, it's it's hard for me. But the, the main difference is realizing how much of it. Uh, how much of the elite in our society is not natural, and it is unfortunately artificial, and uh, and not predicated on on competence, yeah, right? Yeah. They're not they're not profit seekers that outperformed other profit seekers. They're really successful rent seekers. That is, and by the way, when I say <laughs> they, I, I mean like corporatists. There are a lot of genuinely amazing profit seekers yes. that create value for all of us, and that's reflected in them being worth billions of dollars and us not being worth that much. Um, but the corporatists. You know, like this, I mean, basically their, their economic system is fascism. They're parasites and are, and are so properly regarded as parasites. Um, that I'm perfectly happy to be published anywhere. Yeah, corporatists are parasites by definition. Um, hey, if you want to write an article on that, them. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Can Let's make, go off. We can make a, a one-year anniversary for the fee article. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, yes. All right, I'm gonna. We're at an hour and five, so I want to wrap up by getting your opinions and tips on if you're to an SFL leader who's listening and you're they're hearing all these takes you just gave about college campuses and the climate and political opinions and how people just basically generally view virtue and life and all that kind of stuff. If knowing all that, what is your advice? Just reaching out to the college students and meeting them where they're at and getting a club together that really can bring in all these people and can appeal to the most amount of people possible and be a successful organization. And I guess to, oh, I'll, I, I'll start I, off by saying okay. Trinity, um, we kind of went more of like the exclusive route. I think this works at a lot of other private schools I've noticed is like 
instead of trying to be like this is the club for everybody and like everyone's welcome and you know like please like us we're more just like it was more sort of this is a very serious group that like does this this and that we like work a lot we work closer to professors so if you want to join us you know you better like have a have your have your stuff together you better be like you know like doing very well in your classes and you know it was more of like an elite group and like, i guess that's also sort of the point was like we want to make it appealing as in this is where all the cool people are this is where all the hardworking people are and if you want to be like you know one of us that kind of you know we're essentially what the strategy kind of was like let's make classical liberalism markets and the study thereof a cool desirable thing on campus so that kind of worked for us i guess that maybe it's because of the people we had maybe it's because of the campus like the way trinity was set up but uh, we really noticed that sort of maybe a little bit like actually a little bit more exclusive like you must be a good student you must be like involved on campus you must you know do all these cool things and, you, and essentially it was like a networking group um so that's sort of how we made it work but I was, i'm curious to see what you guys think about um how to reach out to people on your campus i'd love to jump in immediately here because i feel like i learned i've learned a lot about this um as president of the dartmouth libertarians but really i actually think i learned a lot more about this from my mentor uh, Dan Sanchez at the Foundation for Economic Education, who explained um, Leonard Reed, uh, the founder of Fee, his concept of being a keysmith for liberty, and that everybody how how people arrive at the freedom philosophy broadly understood, where individual rights are respected, private property is upheld, and the rule of law is upheld, is going to look different for everybody. How I persuade a leftist on prioritarian grounds is totally different than how I'm going to try to engage and persuade um, like a religious traditional conservative. So this may sound ironic coming from me. I think I'm, I'm thought of as a bit of an ideologue and I've definitely behaved like that in the past, but you know, we all grow intellectually and you know, whatever I study philosophy. So I've been thinking and trying to become a, a better version of myself and Leonard Reed and Dan Sanchez really drove home to me the fact that, you know, you cannot, you will not succeed um, in however way you want it to find, you will not feel good. You won't learn anything. The other person won't, won't learn anything. And purely consequentially, there will be fewer libertarians. In fact, you will have alienated somebody from accepting our core principles and conclusions. If you try to jam your specific liberty key into somebody else's, um, you know, very specific lock, your liberty key is not a skeleton key. Okay. Um, and so I think we need to be very careful about being ideological. And I, in fact, I think there are a lot of reactionary, super ideological libertarians. And frankly, those libertarians alienate me from the, li the liberty movement. Okay. So if they're alienating me and I'm like this philosophical libertarian, and I am, and I am, um, you know, what is that going to do to other people? Um, nothing good. And it's not, it's not going to create more libertarians. So what the Dartmouth Libertarians have really done is we do not, we're not culture warriors. That's not what we're about. We are basically an extended group of friends. And so it's like me and my group of friends and our younger friends, right? It's not just a bunch of 23s or seniors, juniors, sophomores. We need to work on getting some freshmen, frankly, we got to branch out. Um, and we get together, have some food, drink some soda and talk about like our lives, current events, economics, what we're learning from the perspective, media, narratives, um, like, like in literature, from a libertarian perspective. And we try to get closer to the truth. So I think that like a good classical liberal, a good libertarian is somebody who's really like considerate towards others, is friendly, um, you know, preferably has good hygiene and works out so that we also don't aesthetically alienate people from the movement. Sounds like I'm joking, really not kidding. 
um, but it's mostly being personally like affable and amiable towards others. And you know, there, we have this. Um, I'll just say one final thing on this point. Something that I was surprised to see last year. There was this anonymous like campus app. I, I'm forgetting what it was called even. Um, but anyway, yik yak, um, huh? Something was like that. Yik, yeah, yik yak. It, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, but same idea. And there was a, a vote that got a bunch of upvotes. Sorry, there was a post that got a bunch of upvotes that said, isn't it funny how the libertarians are the least controversial political club on campus? And then a bunch of people commenting under like, oh yeah, like they're cool. Or like, I know some people there, like they're nice. I don't agree with them, but like, there's nothing wrong with them. And to me, like knowing that campus either has neutral or positive feelings towards the Dartmouth libertarians, I think is, uh, it sounds marginal, but I think that having like an ethos like that and building up that ethos as libertarians does a lot for our economic, political, and, and philosophical um, arguments. Uh, I've, I've kind of also been looking, liberty, uh, looking at liberty a little bit more similar to Ethan, but still in a different way, in a, in a more exclusive way. Um, I'm beginning to care less for convincing other people of libertarian ideas and kind of looking at it as a do what you can for yourself, live a good life yourself. And if you don't want to come, come along, that's on you. I, I, I'm not going to um, tell you why taking a million dollars is a good thing. Like I, I shouldn't have to convince you of that. And I've been trying, I've been focusing a lot more in terms of in my economic writings and, and other things on how people can help themselves. And if you don't want to listen, so be it. Uh, one of the first things I wrote after the American Rescue Plan was passed by an stimulus was buy series I bonds. Inflation's going to rise. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, I'm making money. If you didn't believe me and you thought inflation was not going to happen after the stimulus, sucks for you. And I, I've been trying to, on, on campus, some of the, the next few events I want to do are very individual focused on how you can help yourself in the world we live in. Uh, I'm looking to host, do a tabling event on cybersecurity and how you can really uh, keep your keep your laptop, keep yourself, keep yourself secure uh, and not have to worry about someone washing on you, your internet service provider especially. Uh, and I, I think it's important to really look at how we can uh, ourselves be better off without necessarily relying on government policy or convincing uh, the strong minority, since I, I don't think convincing a majority is necessary, but convincing a strong minority is what you need to do. And I think that's often very difficult uh, if the strong minority hates you. So uh, I've, I've taken, I, I've been looking at libertarianism more exclusively. You want to join the club? Good for you. You'll probably uh, be better off. And if you don't, sorry, that's your choice. Good on you, but you're going to get left behind. <laughs> that's been my view. Yeah, before we move on to Sophia, I want to first, I guess, temper what I just said since uh, Sid just referenced it. So I'm, I think mine's sort of like a mix of what Sid and Jack just said, as in when I say exclusive, I'm not necessarily saying like, oh, yeah, like you're lost if you're not part of this. It's more like we have like an application to get in. We have uh, some we have like our meetings, like the people that we bring in are, you know, they typically um, are really involved in campus and have are really active in the community and pretty accomplished and they're well known and they do well in class. And so we really, and we also look at like, oh, are you actually interested in these things? Like how interested are you? What's your demonstrated interest? 
And then sort of, and then what sort of like what Jack just said about presenting a good face. Yes, it's also very like a lot of these people are well liked in their community. They're nice people. Uh, our events are very like formal, like you know, like bring us like get dressed up because you're gonna be hanging out with professors and guest speakers, and we have an open bar. So like essentially like so I don't want to say I'm necessarily saying it's exclusive because we want the whole campus to come in and learn, but we are trying to present that very clean, polished face. And we try to stay away from events that are exclu explicitly libertarian and more so, I guess what Sid, you were talking about, like something that maybe you can use to better yourself, something a little bit more uh, universal. Like, for example, we did a talk about um, monetary policy uh, by we got someone from that worked on Wall Street and runs a hedge fund and he talked about monetary policy. So that was a very like neutral, universal take. But obviously his kind of message was just like, bad monetary policy, you know, loose monetary policy, too much printing money is bad, right? So we were able to sort of temper it with like, there's a libertarian bent, but ultimately the message is sort of universal. And then everyone that's a part of the organization, you know, is dressed up, has a good resume, like is presenting well. Um, so that's sort of what I was trying to, I think, yeah, to, to really kind of nuance what I just said and explain a little bit more, but uh, moving on to Sophia. common factor here really is that it all depends on your campus culture and the people you're dealing with. So I think everything everyone said is true, just, you know, in different contexts. Um, as someone who formerly worked for a different libertarian organization, I've recruited pretty heavily and I've recruited on different campuses in different parts of the state. Um, I was recruiting like pretty much all over Florida at a certain point. So I will say it does really depend on the campus. Um, so speaking from a Florida perspective, like I said, for example, schools up north tend to be more conservative because northern Florida is more like the true south. Um, but if you're in South Florida, like I'm from, I'm from actual South Florida, I'm from like Miami, Fort Lauderdale area, that's going to be a lot more socially progressive. So if I was on a campus there, I would probably talk about, I don't know, like police reform or drug decriminalization versus if I was at FSU, that would not be what I was talking about. Uh, like Jack said, I do think that who you are as a person also matters a lot. Um, I definitely like think of myself as a normal person, not as a libertarian. I hope everyone here does. I think if your political philosophy is your primary personality trait, that's a problem and you need to do something about that because uh, that doesn't appeal to anyone. And more importantly, that's not conducive to living a happy life as a real person because you're, you know, you're more than your beliefs. So I also think that I've had kind of like the same mentality that Sid was talking about, like just focusing on yourself and yes, like these policies, but as related to yourself and how can you improve your own life and your family's life and do things that work for your future. And if for whatever reason that is, you know, changing the world and that's what's going to make you money, that's what's going to make you free, then so be it. But if it's not, that's okay too. Very based. Um, I guess on that point, there's a little debate in SFL about what's the best type of outreach. Is it more clean and clean cut and kind of like normal not normal is a bad I don't want to be condescending to the other point but okay so some people might say you know the more the turning point USA model like bring in some firebrand speakers um you know cause trouble cause a ruckus get your name out there and then on the other side I guess what we just talked about like more like buttoned up like let's talk about something very kind of mild so I was wondering I guess our final question for the day is like where do you guys stand uh on that spectrum uh, well, I, I, th I definitely think that we need to be having serious conversations. Uh, I, I don't like the idea of bad publicity. Uh, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, I, I really don't uh, think of that uh, positively. 
Um, I, I think it's important to be having academic and intellectual conversations so that uh, people there there are, there are no holes that someone else can come in and punch because when when you when you take the approach of just getting ideas out to lay people uh, that aren't super interested nor should they be um, the it it the, the, it's not like they're gonna think about what you said to them right in that moment they're gonna bring it up with someone else later on and that someone else could bring up uh, a hole in said argument. Uh, and that could turn them away instantly from the ideas you're trying to espouse to them. So I think it's important to really talk about the depths of your ideas through and through. And you may lose some people's interests, but that's really going to be on them at the end of the day. And yeah, th this is where uh, I might be by myself in that regard. And I've been taking a more selfish attitude to libertarianism. Uh, but I, I've also been taking a more pessimistic uh, attitude. And when I say lay people, I don't mean people of lesser intelligence generally. I just mean lesser interest in the particular field at hand. Uh, I think you were properly like, understood. So, yeah, <laughs> I think it would take a really bad faith person to uh, misconstrue <laughs> what you meant there. No, and I'm not even sure. You're definitely not alone. I'm actually with you entirely. Um, and I'd call kind of your, and it's, sounds a little bit like to one extent or another all of our approaches to libertarianism as something akin to like like stoic liberty like the extrinsic circumstances are what they are there are very few people who actually believe in respecting other people's rights and liberty and private property etc etc um that is what it is i'm going to do those things that are meaningful to me and that forward you know, without hurting other people or violating their rights, because we still respect other people's rights, even if they don't respect ours, that is going to make me happier, wealthier in, in all sorts of senses. I don't just mean that monetarily, although, yes, also fiscally wealthier. Um, <clears throat> and I think that for us and for like truth seekers, philosophers, economists, I mean philosopher very broadly here, right? People that are really interested in understanding the nature of things. So for Sid, that's like, uh, mathematical economics. For me, it's also that, but I'm not as, as uh, uh, my comparative advantage doesn't lie in that. So maybe it's like metaethics or metaphysics. Um, and then for Ethan and Sophia, they're different things still. But what doesn't advance doing that, you know, like truth discovering, um, pursuing your purpose, learning more, making meaningful friendships, etc., etc. really learning, learning and growing is inviting firebrands to piss other people off and make specious, um, unserious, like pseudo-intellectual, go on pseudo-intellectual rants. I mean, that is intrinsically meaningless. In fact, I think it's actually antagonistic to, to value. So it's not just valueless, it's like anti-valuable. Yeah, something like that. Um, so no, definitely I'm militantly opposed to that strategy. We should not be doing that. Um, because it's intrinsically and instrumentally antagonistic to our ends. I don't know how anybody could, could feel differently, actually. You should ask the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire Twitter. So I think I'm actually going to be the odd one out here, but I do think that angering people has its place. I don't think that's inherently bad at all. I do think that, I'm not going to say that all press is good press, but to an extent, it also depends on you know your motivations and your goals. Um, I think angering people with like with a real reason is actually really useful and it's a great recruitment tool and it's a great tool to get people involved. 
So if you're inviting a speaker just for the sake of pissing people off, obviously, I think that's an issue. But if you're inviting someone who's controversial, if you're inviting, I don't know, like Ron Paul, which no one here would get because he's so expensive and doesn't tour anymore. But if somehow you got Ron Paul on your campus, you're going to get some people who are upset. You're going to get SCS and YDSI, those people outside screaming, and they're going to call you a racist. And, you know, that is what it is. And I don't think that that's that bad, honestly. I think that if you are going to have more, you know, radical views, that's just a natural consequence of that. And you have to learn to deal with it. And you need to learn to be polite and be respectful and defend your ideas from an intellectual perspective. But you also need to understand that you're going to sacrifice some of that, like, you know, respectability for the sake of your ideas. And I think that that's just inherent to, yeah, having radical non-mainstream ideas. Well, thank you so much for that. I'm glad someone someone actually said something for the other side because we just had like two or two or three people for the other. And that's I'm, I hope the SFL listeners out there will take all this and apply it to your campus. Obviously, some of you might lean towards the more mild side. Some of you might lean towards the more uh, controversial side. And that's obviously everything needs to be taken to, into context. So I hope you, I hope if you're listening, you found this talk very valuable. Uh, this has been a really excellent SFL Banter podcast. And I hope you guys will join us for the next one. Keep a, keep a lookout for it. Thank you so much.